Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to have a bird's eye overview this morning of Romans chapter 6 through 8. They are my favorite chapters in all the Bible, and I'm privileged to be able to preach them to you today. Um, good morning, I'm Matt Winquist. I'm one of the elders here at Wildwood and the discipleship pastor here uh, at Wildwood. Uh, a number of years ago, when Kelly and I were first married, uh, my wife worked as a consultant, and as, as a result, she traveled a lot. Every week, she would travel back and forth to wherever she was working. As a result of that, she gained a whole bunch of, of miles on American Airlines and uh, got to the point where she was platinum status. Um, and, that, and, that, and that takes some doing. Uh, but when you are platinum status, you get you get certain benefits as a result of, of being platinum. There's all kinds of benefits. Among them, and I don't even know if airlines do this anymore, um, us norm we, we don't have status anywhere right now. If there's, we're not gold or silver, if there's a color, it's probably gray for us right now. Um, but back in the day, she was platinum, and, that, and at that time, they had what was called a, a concierge lounge, where you could go in into this, this lounge, and it was not for normal people. Um, you, they had comfortable seats, they had, they had snacks, sometimes they had hot food, uh, they had drinks, and, and there was just, it was just an amazing place to be that was completely different from the rest of the airport. And um, I didn't have that status, um, but when I would travel on the random times that I did travel with Kelly, she would try and get me into the concierge lounge so I could experience the benefits of, of, of her status as well. Um, didn't always work, but when it did, I, can, I remember like walking in there like I owned the place. I don't think I said this stuff out loud, but I, I kind of walked in there and was like, hey, you're platinum? Me too. I'm platinum. <laughs> We're both platinum, and that's why we get to eat all this stuff. Um, and, but the reality was, the only reason why I had the status momentarily for that day was because of who Kelly was and what she had done, what she had earned. She had earned the status of being platinum. I was just there because of who she was. And, you know, and it was tempting. I know early on in our marriage, especially when we didn't have very much, it would have been tempting, like there was all kinds of stuff. And it was tempting for me to be like, okay, so it's free, right? Like, how free? Uh, like, if I, if I take more than one, is that okay? What about if I take the whole bowl and dump it in my backpack, and that bowl too, and now I have enough snacks for not only today's flights, but all the flights that I'm ever going to take? Is that okay too? Um, there is a similar situation at play in our passage today in Romans chapter 6 through 8, where Paul has set up for us throughout Romans this, the fact that we have a status in Jesus Christ, that we are in fact completely righteous, and completely sinless, not because we earned it, but because Jesus earned it on our behalf, and because he died in our place and paid what we actually deserve, which is death, and he rose again. And he so convincingly argues this that it leaves us to ask the question, okay, so now what can I get away with? What is the extent of my actual salvation in the here and now while I wait for his return? 
And so today we're going to be talking about sanctification. It's the third main theme of Romans. The last two weeks we talked about sin and justification. Sin earns us God's wrath. Justification is God paying the penalty for our sins in the person of Jesus Christ, taking our sin on himself, and through faith we get justification. We get right standing before God, and we get sinlessness as a result. Christ's sinlessness. In our passage today, Paul asks four main leading questions that we're going to cover. And so the structure of this sermon today is literally just going to be following his structure. There's four questions. They all start, what shall we say then or what then? And then he asks the question. And then the material that follows, including some more questions to help us understand the leading questions, um, he, he goes on to answer those questions. All right, and so we're gonna we're gonna answer the, we're gonna ask the questions we're gonna answer the questions we're gonna work our way entirely through Romans uh, six through eight. It's going to be a ride, but we're gonna get there. Um, and in these passages, why does Paul have to ask these questions? The questions he asks he asks them because there is a tension that exists already in in our lives as Christians. There's a tension between the already. We are just, we are righteous, we are sinless in Christ because we've died to sin through Christ, but we are also not yet fully what we will be when we are completely saved, when Jesus Christ returns. There's that tension that exists right there. The word sanctification itself holds within it a tension. Pastor Brian rightly defined sanctification a couple weeks back as the process by which we become more like Jesus for the rest of our lives while we're here on earth. And that is correct. However, the Bible, when the Bible uses sanctification, it doesn't just use it in a future tense. It talks about our sanctification in the past, present, and future tense. Sometimes the Bible says, and actually most often it says, you have been sanctified, past tense. So how can the Bible talk about it as being something that's already happened, is happening, and will happen at the same time? These are the questions. This is the tension, and I'm going to use that word a lot as I go through the passage this morning. This is the tension that Paul is building here in Romans, and it comes to a head right here in these passages. Sanctification, the word itself, holds tension. All right, in order to understand what Paul is saying, we need to quickly review what Paul has said to this point in, ver- in chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 1 defines how the world at large uh, rejects God in spite of his revelation in creation and the evidence of his creation. And as a result, because of our rejection of God, uh, we have become objects of God's wrath. Chapter, in Romans chapter 2, he confronts not just the people at large in the world, but he says you also are without excuse because you practice the very same things. Romans chapter 3 is summarized nicely by Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like every single one of us, Jew, Gentile, Greek, um, born yesterday, born today, doesn't matter. You are, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the story doesn't end there. Paul goes on to say in Romans 3.24, the very next verse, very next verse, but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on for the next couple of chapters to develop this idea that our salvation depends on a promise and not on works, not on good things that we do. 
and, uh, and not on the law. And in fact, the law made our sin more pronounced, but the more pronounced our sin is, the more grace abounds. And that's where chapter 5 leaves off, right before our passage in verses 20 and 21. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we come to this passage here having... As, as a reader of what Paul has said so far, we come to it and we're like, okay, so wait. I'm, compl- I'm justified. I'm completely righteous. I'm completely sinless. All the sin that I've ever committed in the past is paid for. Anything I do today, paid for. Anything I do in the future, paid for. Am I getting this right, Paul? And Paul would say, yes, that is right. Which leads us Does it not lead you? It leads me to think, okay, so what can I get away with, right? Um, And it's funny that we should ask that because that's the question Paul asked. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? What do you suppose his answer is? By no means, not at all. No, absolutely not. We're not to continue in sin. In fact, he asked another question to answer that and how ridiculous it is. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, so he talks about how our life is bound up in Christ's life and his death. When Christ died, we literally died with him. And when he rose, we literally rose with him. And there is a purpose behind that, not just in our eternal life. Someday we will live with him forever, but there is a purpose in it now. We too might walk in newness of life. It matters now that we walk in newness of life. Verse 4. Verse 5. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. All right? Christ's death frees us. That word enslaved, slavery, comes up over and over again. Uh, we have a choice now. There is an ability to be free from sin, whereas before, before Christ, we were enslaved. We had no choice. We were enslaved entirely to sin. Now we have a choice of who to be a slave to. Verse 7, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. That, that word that's translated has been set free in most English translations can literally be translated uh, justified. It is the Greek word for justification that's right there. Um, and it means the same thing. What is justification? Literally being free from the penalty of sin because you've been declared righteous, even if you're not. Now, verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And I want you to make a mental note of that phrase. Death no longer has dominion over him um, because it's going to come up right now. It's here it's applied to Christ. In a few verses, it's going to be applied to us. And I want you to keep a mental note of that. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to, to God in Christ Jesus. I want you to think about consider yourselves. Consider yourselves is the first a verb in the command form in the Greek in, in the book of Romans. This is the first time we get a command, and it's to consider yourselves dead to sin. Interesting. Do dead people normally have to consider themselves dead? No, they don't. When dead people are dead, they're just dead. They don't consider anything. Um, but Paul tells us, who he's already said, we've died to sin, to consider yourself dead to sin. Why do we have to consider ourselves dead to sin if we're already dead to sin? There's tension. Do you feel the tension building? Paul is saying you're dead to sin, but you have to consider yourself dead to sin. I just want you to ask the question, why right now? Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Again, there's three more commands there that, that assume, even though you're, he's already said you're dead to sin, that there's something that, you still remain, that remains to be done. You don't present yourself to sin. You do present yourself to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Pastor Brian referenced this last week when he was talking about um, what, what, we're, what we're to look forward to in, in our lives, that, that sin will have no dominion over you. And that's that phrase that I wanted you to, um, that I wanted you to, to keep in mind. Remember, just as death no longer has dominion over Jesus because he rose again from the grave, same way, sin no longer has dominion over you. It's not that you can't sin. It's not that you're not able to sin because of your flesh, but it no longer has dominion over you. It cannot reign over you any longer. Verse 15, uh, this is the next what-then question. Uh, the first one was, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? By no means. Uh, if, and so in verse 14, it says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And, and, and when you consider that, okay, we're not under the law. It means we don't have to obey the law in order to gain salvation. Well, what does that mean? What is, if I'm under grace, does that mean, I mean I can sin all I want? Funny you should ask, because Paul asked the same question. He asked that question. He anticipates that question. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? What do you suppose his answer is? By no means. No, not at all. That's ridiculous. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? All right, so Paul's setting up this. He's like, no, it's not okay for you to sin um, because you're not under law but under grace. You have a choice now. You can be a slave to obedience or a slave to disobedience. The only reason that you can be a slave to obedience right now is because of what Christ has done for you and because he lives in you through his righteousness. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves have sinned, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. I want you to notice a couple of things about those verses. One, it's speaking in terms of being slaves. We just got set free 
if, you're, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, of being slaves to sin. And now the Bible is telling us we need to be slaves to something else. As Americans, we don't like that. Um, and some translations actually translate it servant rather than slaves. Slaves is actually the right translation. This word has a connotation of slavery. Why would God want us to be slaves to anything? Paul answers that question in a minute. Um, also notice that as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, there's that term leading to sanctification. Notice the tension that's there. It's not, it's not that we've been sanctified, we have, but there is something that we do now in the presence, present that leads to sanctification, something that's in the future. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And here's why one form of slavery is not desirable and another one is. Paul answers that question right here. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things for which you are now ashamed? And here's, here's the reason why being a slave of sin is wrong. For the end of those things is death. That is why being a slave to sin is a problem. Keep on going, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that you get from that leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Again, leads to sanctification. You are already sanctified, but yet there is still more sanctification to be done. Do you feel the tension? Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love Pastor Brian's illustration last week when he was talking about how he, he was giving his daughter Addison uh, her wages that, uh, that came in the mail and, and said, here's, uh, and he said, here's a, a gift for you. Like he was giving her a gift and making the point that, no, she actually earned that. What do we actually earn by our behavior? We earn death, right? We earn a debt that we can never hope to be repaid, and yet we will pay it for all eternity unless we have faith in Jesus Christ. And then that debt is erased for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We get life because of what Jesus did. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. This is just common sense that Paul is speaking right here. Like, when you die, do you have to obey the law anymore? No, you don't, because you're dead. Um, and, and so then he uses an illustration to, to illustrate this point. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, he is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Quite simply, Paul is just using the story of marriage, this, this illustration of marriage, to illustrate the very simple fact that when one person dies in the relationship, the covenant is, uh, is they're now the other person is now released from that covenant of marriage. It just is the way it is. Verse 4, likewise, now he's, he's, bringing it back to us, the reader, saying, likewise, just as that covenant was you're released from the covenant of marriage when the other person dies, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. I don't want you to pay attention, keep that in mind, died to the law. What tense is that in? 
past tense, you died to the law, it's already happened, through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind too. We've died to the law, released from the law. Both of those are what tense? Past tense having died to the law, which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I want you to notice the tension between Paul saying, you've died to the law and you've been released from the law, and go back to chapter uh, 3, verse 31. Uh, Paul has been talking about how we're justified freely by his grace, and it's not anything that we do, um, and, and it's, it's based on a promise and he says this at the end, uh, that we receive it by faith. And he says this, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? What's his answer? By no means. No, not at all. On the contrary, we uphold the law. How, oh how, do we be dead to the law and released from the law, past tense, and continue to uphold the law? Paul's answer is found in the second half of that verse. So that we, and in verse 6 of chapter 7, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. There are some people who will say that we should no longer pay any attention to what the Old Testament says. We don't have to obey the, the moral commands in it any longer. That is false. It is false because who is it that gave the commands in the first place? God did Jesus did, because, and it flowed from his character. It flowed from who he is. He has not changed his character, and so he has not changed his law. We still need to obey his law. Who is it that dwells in us if we are believers? His Holy Spirit. And it is now his Holy Spirit that allows us and enables us to obey his moral law and to uphold the law. That's how it works. Do you sense the tension that exists in Romans that he's communicating here. Given that tension, he's just said we, we died to the law, we've been released from the law, and, and we died to that which held us captive, which is the law in this context. You, one might begin to think, okay, maybe the law is bad. It's a bad thing. Is, is the law a bad thing? Funny, you should ask, because that's what he asked right here in verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? What's his answer? By no means, not at all, of course not. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. All right, if you're uh, the type that likes to like mark in your Bibles, in fact, I mean, you guys got journal Bibles, the whole point of that is to write in them, right? Uh, maybe circle, highlight, underline, whatever the word sin every time you see it moving forward here because his answer to the question is, is the law sin? No, what's sin? Sin is sin, all right? And sin is what causes all the problems. Notice what he says about it. I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And so what is the problem? Uh, 
Is the law sin? No, sin is sin, Paul says. And sin is what destroys us. Sin is what deceives us. And sin is what kills us. And so the law is not the problem. The problem is our own unrighteousness and our own sin. In fact, he emphatically, in case there was any doubt whatsoever that we still think maybe the law is bad in some way, shape, or form, verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In no uncertain terms does Paul say that the law is bad, and yet there are people out there who will say that it is. I've literally read it in books uh, where, where people say the law is bad. This is the reason the law is bad. Um, that is a false statement. So then that leads to the question that he asks next. Did that which is good then bring death to me? What's his answer? By no means. No, not at all. It was what? Sin. Sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Wait, we need to back up here. All right, so again, sin is the problem. Now, starting in verse 14 and moving to the end of chapter 7 is a very controversial passage in, in the Bible. Um, there's about as many opinions on this passage coming up here as there are people who read it. Uh, it's that difficult. Um, I have a very firm opinion and view on this passage, and I'm going to share it passionately with you. Know that there are many, many godly men, commentators, theologians, who are Protestant, Reformed, just like me, who interpret this differently. Um, and, and it is possible even, I think Brian and I agree on this, I think Andy and I agree on this, Andrew and I agree on this, but it's possible that as we study through this and work through this, maybe they come to a different conclusion. Maybe Brian ends up with a different conclusion than I have. It's okay for Brian to be wrong, okay? <laughs> uh, it's okay for him to be wrong. I don't think he's going to come to different, but it's okay if he does. Uh, this isn't a matter of salvation, but it's not insignificant, right? This is important, and that's why I passionately believe what I believe about this. Here's the issue that's at stake. The question that remains here, is Paul talking about himself, or is he talking about someone else? And the second issue is, is he talking about the present tense, what's currently happening to him or to someone else, or is he talking about past tense? All right? I come down very firmly on the fact that Paul is talking about himself in the present tense, and that has humongous implications for how we interpret this particular passage. Let's read it. No, and here's, the, here's a couple reasons why I interpret the main overarching reasons. The simplest explanation in interpretation is almost always the right one. And the reason why my interpretation of this passage is the simplest one is because in this passage, Paul uses the personal pronouns, the first-person personal pronouns repeatedly. I, me, my, myself. And so, if you, if you decide it's, he's talking about somebody else, you have a really hard and tough bat uphill battle to convince me of that because he actually uses... He speaks of himself, all right? And he doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to give you an illustration of what might happen if, it, if this were me. No, he just jumps right into it. I, me, myself. The second reason, up to this point in Romans, Paul has been using the aorist tense, which communicates past action that is completed. He also uses the imperfect tense a lot, 
which has a past tense translation, but it has implications on in, into the future. Um, in this passage, guess what tense he uses? Present tense. Present tense in the Greek primarily denotes continuous action um, and secondarily indicates present time. All right, so again, the simplest explanation for the interpretation is just based on the grammar, just based on what Paul does. We know Paul can talk in the past tense. We know he can talk in the third person and second person because he's done all of the above already. And yet here he switches to first person, present tense. All right, very, very convincing. You thought you didn't need to know grammar when you got older. Kids, you do need to know grammar. It helps you understand the Bible, all right? Um, but anyway, there are other reasons found within the text. We're going to look at them as we go. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, present tense, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, present tense. I do not, present tense, do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. I want you to pay attention to that. It's very important. Um, I have the desire to do what is right. Keep that in your mental note. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is, is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want you to pay attention to that last phrase, too. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The reason why people struggle with this is because this is the Apostle Paul talking. And sometimes we put the Apostle Paul on a pedestal that he never meant for himself to be on. We deify him almost to an extent, saying that Paul could not sin, Paul could not struggle with sin like we do. And, and we struggle with the fact that the person that was writing God's inspired word down for us to read could potentially struggle with sin his entire life. Now, can someone who says, or, and it is actually true of them, that I have the desire to do what is right, and can someone who says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, be an unbeliever? I think the answer to that question is resoundingly no from the whole of the canon of Scripture. No, and here's, here's where, and Paul himself, I think, would agree with that. If you turn back to chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, where Paul is showing us how everyone is guilty under sin, here's, what, here's how he describes someone who is in that condition. Verse 11, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that sound like someone that has the desire to do what is right? Does that sound like someone who delights in the law of God in their inner being? No, it doesn't. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 28. And it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's, clearly in, it's clear in chapter 1 he's speaking of unregenerate people who have rejected God. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, verse 29. Evil, covetous malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders. What's that next part? Haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does that sound like someone who has the desire to do what's right? No, it doesn't. Does it sound like someone who delights in the law of God in their inner being? No. How is, what is the only way that it's possible for you to delight in God's law in your inner being? If it's written on your heart, and the only way that it can be written on your heart is if you have Jesus dwelling in you through his Holy Spirit. That is the only way that it works. And that is why the most important reason, not just because of present tense and, and first person singular, but because of that. Paul is talking about himself in the present tense because he delights in God's law because he has the Holy Spirit, and yet he still struggles with sin. Do you feel the tension building? Verse 23, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Tension. Feel the weight of Paul's frustration with his own sin even though he is already dead to sin. What's his response? He's feeling the tension too, because here's what he says, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, here's some more tension, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul's very clearly setting up the fact that because of who our status in Christ, we are in fact righteous, we are in fact sinless before God. And yet, something in our flesh still has a desire to sin. There is a tension that's built here. And that can lead us to a point where we're frustrated and we feel like, does God still love me? Is, is my salvation still secure? Funny you should ask, because chapter 8, verse 1, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, if you like highlighting in your Bibles, uh, every time you see the word spirit moving forward here, uh, it's referring to the Holy Spirit more often than not. Uh, highlight that in these verses. It's a huge theme in chapter 8 because the only way that we live out Christ's righteousness is through his Spirit. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's, this, there's also a theme of set your minds. Like, you can, as a believer, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You can set your minds on the things of the flesh. Paul is asking us, set, or telling us, set your minds on the things of the Spirit. You have the ability to do so. Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Again, 
Paul's very own words here tells us that he's talking about himself in Romans chapter 7. Uh, mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It cannot please, it cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul is in the spirit because he has placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He has the ability now to set his mind on the things of the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, verse 9, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See the emphasis on the spirit? You cannot do life. You cannot please God apart from the spirit. If you do not have a relationship with God, if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are still dead in your sins. You need Christ to make you alive. And you can do that today simply by believing his word to be true. So then, brothers, we are debtors, verse 12, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I want you to make a mental note of this. Received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What tense is received? It's past tense. It's already happened. And we can currently cry out, Abba, Father, which is like saying, Daddy. We have that relationship with him. And it goes on to say, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are currently children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. And he's going to describe what kinds of sufferings we might encounter later in chapter 8. So mental note there. Uh, we are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, so wait. We're already adopted as sons, and yet creation is waiting still for the revealing of the sons of God? How does that make any sense? Do you feel the tension? Let's keep reading. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we what? We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. So Paul, what are you telling me? You already told me that, that we've already received the spirit of adoption, but we're still waiting for it? How does that make any, ten any sense at all? Unless there's tension. There's tension between the already who we already are in Christ. We can claim that we are adopted as sons because it is so certain that it will happen because Jesus is going to make it happen on our behalf. And we rate the redemption of our bodies, end of verse 23 there. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we wait, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
there are some people that will say that we already have everything that we that will ever have in Jesus Christ. And that's ridiculous because if this is what salvation is, if the present course of time and, and this earth and all the pain and suffering that are surrounding it is all that there is, that's not, there's nothing to hope for there. But we hope for something that we don't have yet, the redemption of our bodies. Someday our body of sin will be completely done away with and will be given a new body that can no longer sin and won't want to. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, verse 26, for we, know, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's one of my favorite verses because there's oftentimes when I, I look at situations in life and I'm like, I feel the Lord's calling me to do this. This is what obedience looks like. And so is this over here. Uh, but if I do this over here, I'm messing this up over here. I and mean, if I do that over here, I'm messing this up over here. And so sometimes I just go before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I've I got to do something. Uh, I am going to do something. Forgive me for, for messing up if I'm messing up. But Lord, help me. Plead before the Father on my behalf because I don't even know what to pray for. I don't know what your will is. I don't know what to ask for. Um, Verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be uh, the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Oh, we're not going to spend a ton of time right here. We could. Um, there is a lot that's said here about foreknowledge and predestination and all that stuff. We're going to cover that next week in chapters 9 through 11 when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. Suffice it to say right now, we should take comfort in the fact that the entire process of our salvation from before the foundation of the world until the time that we are glorified is completely controlled, ordained, and orchestrated by God. That is of great comfort to me. And, um, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But that leads us to a place where we're like, okay, um, this is amazing truth. Chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the fourth main question. Notice there is no but by no means here. No, he answers the question, this very important question with, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? There's only one person that can be against us, and it's God himself. Here's what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all hell, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Like, the only person that can be against us sent his only son to die for your sins and for mine. So why would he be against us? What could he possibly have against us if he sent his son to die for our sins? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring a, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Only God can. But what does it say that he do? It is God who justifies. That's amazing. The only person that can, that can bring a charge against you is the one that justified you through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Who is to condemn? 
who's the only person that can condemn you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Soak in the tension of that truth that while you are still struggling with sin, the only person that can condemn you for that sin is the one that died on the cross for it and is currently seated before the Father, interceding on your behalf, saying, nope, I paid for that sin. Nope, we're going to keep that one because I died for him. I died for her. That's an amazing truth. He's interceding. So why would he condemn us if he died for us and he's interceding for us? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice that Paul doesn't say you won't experience these things. He says... um, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ is the question. Can these things happen? He's assuming that they will. But who can separate us from the love of Christ? And his answer is no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the answer to his question who can separate us from the love of Christ is nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Even if you experience hardship in this life, even if you sin in this life, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, as the worship team returns, um, this message that Paul is speaking, this tension that he speaks of, is, is a tension that you need to hear, understand, and feel, no matter who you are. No matter what you come here today, in whatever situation you come, uh, you could be someone who does not yet have a relationship with Jesus. This message is for you. You need the Spirit of Christ, and the only way that you can get it is by believing in his finished work on the cross um, and his resurrection from the grave. Uh, Jesus paid for your sins so that you could have a right relationship with God. If you've already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this message is for you because... um, I don't know about you, but I still struggle with sin just like Paul did. And I need Jesus' grace new every morning. And it's not okay to continue walking in sin because we have Christ's righteousness and sinlessness at our disposal so that we can live just like him. So whatever sin that we're struggling with, we need to lay it at the feet and we need to fight. That's what Paul says. It's waging war and we're not to let it and we're not to conform to it. This is something that everybody, uh, everybody needs, no matter whether you are a believer yet or whether you are a believer now. And so let us encourage one another to walk as Jesus did, because we have the ability as those who are in Christ to do so. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. 
But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.